are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Uh, the word of the Lord, as written in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Joey. If you've been with us for the last couple of months, you know we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, looking at how Jesus calls us to wise growth in whole person righteousness. And we're up to that part in the sermon where Jesus talks about sex and sexuality. So we've, we've paused for a few minutes to really dig into his teaching. Uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning, I want to say welcome. And the scripture reading probably cued you in as to what we're going to be talking about here this morning. So uh, like we said every week, if you've got kids and you're like, I'm not so sure I'm ready for my kids to hear this stuff, um, anytime during the sermon, like if it starts to get a little overwhelming or something, which I don't intend for it to, but if it does, you never know, spirit might lead. Um, <laughs> you can send your kids out the back down to the, to the kids zone. We'll just fold them right into what we're doing and take care of them for the rest of the morning. So, and uh, I do want to say I, I have really appreciated the feedback y'all have given as we've been in this series, uh, this particular topic for the last couple of weeks. You've been texting in great questions for us to interact around with the podcast. The number's up there if you have more questions and want to text those in. Keep those coming. Um, and I will say to those of you who have complained that because of this topic, your kids don't want to sit with you during the service, <laughs> just make some room or... or you know, flank them between the two of you so they can't get away. All right. So we're talking about, we're digging into, you know, what Jesus taught and believed about sex and sexuality. It's a hugely important discussion for the world we live in because this topic more than just about any other strikes so much at the core of how we think about ourselves as human beings. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to express my humanity as an individual? as people within a family, a friend group, a broader society. You know, there's questions of what do we owe one another and how much do we belong to ourselves and to one another? So super easy, simple, light questions, right? As we've been going through these, like we've been dealing with some, some major questions. Now, to recap, we spent, we've spent two weeks so far, this is week three, we spent two weeks digging into what Jesus meant when he said, Anyone who looks, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who looks at another person with lustful intent has already committed adultery with that person in their heart. What do you mean by that? Well, we had to go backwards to see what sort of background assumptions and beliefs Jesus brings to the table that he takes for granted that we maybe have a harder time grasping. That was two weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at how Jesus takes that Old Testament law, you shall not commit adultery, and says, yeah, that's good, keep that, but remember, there's a heart posture under it 
and an attitude that makes adultery possible. Let's talk about that and that heart posture. So we talked about that last week, how that heart posture, that desire to use another person like a thing, like a product you can pull off the shelf in order to meet a need, in this case to meet your own sexual needs or desires. That attitude is what Jesus wants to transform. That posture of your heart is what Jesus wants to change even as he changes and transforms your actions and behaviors. Now that's great for for us. We we spent two weeks reading and sort of understanding this, but I wanted to take this third week to say, okay, now given all of that, how did the early church in this pagan, pluralistic, and especially sexually permissive world where everybody believes different things, nobody believes anyone has the lock on truth, and anything goes when it comes to what you do with your body, how did the Apostle Paul take Jesus' teaching about sex and apply it in that kind of a world? That's why we've turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, chapter 7. And what, what makes Paul's uh, just pastoral application of Jesus' teaching so masterful is not only does he call people to transform their actions, to disciple their desires, but he continues, just like Jesus, to get deeper into the heart, striking at the core of belonging. Who gets to say what I do with my body? Who do I belong to? And ultimately, he concludes, and we'll conclude today as we walk through this, that you have to know, you have to know that you belong to God if you're going to live like you belong to Jesus. You gotta know that you belong to God if you're gonna be able to live like you belong to God. So again, that's why we've turned here to 1 Corinthians 6, excuse me, where where Paul is writing to these churches in Corinth. And I wanna start with a bit of a hypothetical here. If you were in Paul's shoes, how would you convince these brand new believers steeped in a sexually permissive culture, how would you help them discern how to apply Jesus is teaching on sex and sexuality. What would you do? What would you say? Would you point out to them that maybe they should stay away from sexual immorality because especially the prostitution they're engaged in is inherently violent and abusive and exploitative of women, never truly consensual? Would you point that out? Because it's true. Uh, Or maybe point out that, hey, infidelity in this case is going to lead to broken families, broken marriages. You're going to spread disease and affect your own health. Is that what you want? Again, true, but not where Paul goes. You could point out to them that what you're really trying to do when you're going to look for sexual acceptance is you're trying to... Uh, You're trying to massage your own or suppress your own insecurities. You're trying to build an identity on something that cannot hold the weight of it. Is is that what you want to do? Or challenge them more positively. Say, hey, don't you know that faithfulness in singleness or in marriage is an important practice of self-discipline? It's a way of living with integrity. Don't you want to live with integrity? Or go for more of like the... um, socially unacceptable route and say, hey, don't you know what you're doing is impure and good Christians don't do those things? Now, again, all of those approaches are true and valid, but none of them are where Paul goes. He doesn't use any of those particular approaches, though he kind of hints around at them. Instead, he really drives to to one key question, which is a key question for them and a key question for us. At the end of the day, when he's looking at them and saying, you need to apply Jesus' teaching about sex and sexuality, he says, because don't you know 
you are not your own? Have you forgotten that you don't belong to yourself? Now, what does that mean? Well, let's jump in and find out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's on page 1134 if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you. And if you're at home with your own Bible, I can't help you, but you're probably Googling it anyway. So turn to 1 Corinthians 6 while you're turning there. Well, that was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? 1 Corinthians 6. While you're turning there, let me set the stage, see if we can get back. All right, in this letter, Paul is writing to a church that is as diverse as the city in which it existed. Jews, Greeks, Romans, slaves, free men, free women, artisans, craftspeople, a few of the super rich, quite a few of the super poor, all existing within this group of house churches. There are prostitutes and sailors, merchants and bankers, stonemasons and shipbuilders, philosophers and theologians, artists and patrons of the arts, all mingling together in this city that one historian called the ancient equivalent of New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, all smashed together into one. And Corinth was known for its sexually permissive culture, so much so that the ancient equivalent of what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth was part of the popular vocabulary. So again, imagine you're part of a church of brand new believers who've been steeped in this their whole lives, and you're trying to live out Jesus's vision for sex and sexuality in this anything-goes type of world. Now, there, there was some kind of unique to Corinth theological things going on here in these various churches as they tried to work all of this stuff out. Like, what are you supposed to do if the culture's so corrosive? How should Christians respond? And some had taken this approach of saying, look, here's the thing. Sex is so destructive, so powerful, so dangerous when misused that a truly holy person, a sanctified person, entirely just stays away from it. Don't even go near it. Even if you're married... The best way to be married is to be in this marriage, but celibate, because you're never going to not hurt each other, so just don't even go there. (coughs) Understandably, that in the marriages where one of the spouses began to think that way, um, the other tended, seemed to have tended to develop an opposite response, which was more along the lines of, look, our souls are saved by Jesus. We're going to go to heaven. When we die, our bodies will burn. They will not matter. What you do with your body doesn't matter. So married or not, single or not, do whatever you want with your body because that's not where your relationship with Jesus is. Your relationship with Jesus is in your heart and in your spirit. It has nothing to do with your organs. Now, Paul is writing, specifically addressing this context and what's going on there, and addressing their sort of theological, like their sloganized theology that was, was building the foundation for these beliefs. Uh, we're going we're gonna to see what Paul does here as we get to verses 15 through 20, but to understand it, I want to get a sort of a running start at it, so I'm going to jump all the way back to verse 12. And if you're using a modern translation, you look at verse 12, you may notice that the first phrase is in quotes. Uh, That's indicating that most interpreters agree, like this is something that the Corinthians were saying, that Paul is quoting their own letter back to them and then kind of agreeing with it, but mostly refuting refuting it, saying, okay, maybe, but not in this context. Right? So there's a couple of those throughout this paragraph. So verse 12, all things are lawful for me. 
He's quoting them. Remember, he's saying, okay, so you say all things are lawful for me. Right, freedom in Christ, I got it. But you do know, like, not all things are helpful, right? Like, there's no law that says you can't sit there and pound five bags of Doritos. But is that helpful? Would your colon agree that's helpful, right? No. It's, okay, sure, you can, but should you? He, he quotes it again. All things are lawful for me. Okay, I get that. But what, you're doing things that are, are ending up dominating you. You've given yourself to these things that are good and okay, and yet they have become your master. Don't be dominated by anything. Then he quotes them again in verse 13. Have food for the stomach and the stomach for food, which was their sort of sloganized way of saying, look, what, what happens in a body and what is done to a body is just about the body. It has nothing to do with my spirit, has nothing to do with my relationship with Jesus. That's just, you know, the flesh bag that I walk around in. It has no ongoing lasting significance. And Paul somewhat agrees with them. He says, well, yeah, and God will destroy. The word there is sort of make unnecessary. He's going to nullify. Yeah, God's going to make unnecessary uh, the, the both one and the other, the food and the stomach. You're not going to need both. But the body will persist, and the body is not meant for sexual immorality. All right, food may be meant for the stomach. The stomach may be designed to take in food, but the body is not designed to be used for sexual immorality. It's designed to be used for the Lord, and the Lord is also for the body. We know this because in verse 14, God raised the Lord. He's talking about Jesus. He said, God raised Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. Now, what he's saying there is, look, you can't come at Christianity from this perspective that it's all about spirit and body doesn't matter at all because God raised Jesus into a body. Jesus came in a body, died in a body, and was raised in a body. That means bodies matter. Bodies have significance. And Jesus being raised in a body means also that you will be raised into a body. So what you do in your body now matters because you will have that body, renewed and recreated, but you will have that body for eternity when you are raised again. You can't just write off the physical part of you and say, no, what really matters is you know, the spiritual part of me. And it goes on. Verse 15, don't you know that your bodies, you know, this physical part of you is also a member of Christ. In other words, member there means body part. Don't you know that your bodies are a body part in the body of Jesus? Don't you realize, like, your bodies, when you became a Christian, when you, <coughs> excuse me, when you came to the realization that Jesus is who he says he is, He's the Son of God in human form, in a body, that he did what he said he did, that he died in your place to pay the penalty for your sin, and that what he says is true is true for you. You know, that you, even in me, even in my sin and sinfulness, can be forgiven by Jesus, adopted by God, brought into the family, made right, now participating in God's work in setting the whole world back right. It says, when you became a Christian, your body, all of you, your body also became a part of Christ's body. Not, you know, you as in like the true you or the spiritual you or, you know, just your soul or your spirit or whatever, but all of you, all y'all's bodies 
all became body parts of Jesus' body. Now, obviously, that's metaphorical. Uh, It's it's trying to get across uh, this idea that uh, as, as believers, as physically united to Jesus in this metaphorical sense, we too, our bodies will be like his, resurrected like his. We've got this promise in the future that will be resurrected into new life like Jesus was. So Paul's question then is, how can you take, verse 15, how then can you take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? How can you take parts of the body of Jesus and make them parts of the body of a prostitute? Don't you understand when you are engaging in sexual immorality, specifically in their context, in this way, When you're engaging in sexual immorality, you're taking a part of Jesus' body, your part of his body, and making it participate in sin. Those two things don't go together. You can't take your part of his body and force him to participate in your sin. But then Paul raises the stakes again with another rhetorical question. Verse 16. He's kind of looking at him saying, because don't you know... Don't you remember that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? It is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, we've talked in the last couple of weeks about the the one flesh union, specifically last week, and we talked about how this this union that sex uh, creates and reinforces, right? How God designed sex to bring together two people in a relationship of love and mutual self-giving. Sex is designed to indissolubly bind two people together through its power to unite us spiritually, physically, emotionally, but also its power to literally create new life. An eternal human being can be created by your union with another person. That binds you to that person in some sense for all of eternity. And in sex... We come as close as we will ever get to feeling fully and completely united with another person. Uh, That longing that we all have to be fully known, fully accepted, a longing that is pictured in our union with one another in a marriage, but is fulfilled in our ultimate union with God in eternity. See, look, this is what sex is for. Emotionally and spiritually, physically binds us to other people and to to the life that it creates, embeds us in all these thick webs of meaning, family and society and all of those things. It's a powerful, powerful action. Paul's saying, so don't you realize that if you unite yourself in that way with a prostitute in this sense, you, you, if you become one flesh with that person, you're taking something that's designed to reinforce a permanent and exclusive one flesh union, and you're trying to enjoy a knockoff version of it in another context. A knockoff version that itself ruins the value of the version you were meant for and created to experience. <clears throat> As he's running up and building this cumulative case, he's like, your body is a member of the body of Christ. You are one in spirit with Jesus the Lord. How can you do this to your body? Take that whole idea, throw it out the door. You cannot do this. And so, application, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. 
It's like the shortest, most succinct, easiest to understand application for this big, long theological paragraph before it and all the ones that come after it. He says, okay, got to remember the context here. Uh, We're talking about brand new believers in an anything goes culture who have grown up knowing nothing different, who have been told their whole lives that, that sex is how you get things done. It's how you make religion work, it's how you make business work, it's how you make politics work. You share favors, you share all of this stuff, you, you go to the temple of the fertility goddess and you practice these specific things in order to make sure you get a harvest, like all of this, right? You don't buy fertilizer, you go to the temple. This is how you make sure that you've got what you need. You've got the money you need, you've got the business you need, all of this. And, and, and Paul's writing to these guys and saying, this is gonna either need to say a lot or a very little in terms of what should you do. So he says just one thing, run away. (laughs) Flee sexual immorality, just get out of there. He says don't hang around with it, don't tolerate it, don't fight it, don't flirt with fire, just flee. And if you're finding yourself in a place where you're tempted by something illicit, for them in this context, it was, you know, there's no internet and pornography like we have today, so you have to actually physically go to the temple and find someone. For us, it's more of this uh, pornography culture or the casual hookup culture or the series of long-term relationships that are far more physical than they should be. If you find yourself in that place where you're tempted by something illicit, Paul says, don't hang around and be like, I can resist. Just give me a chance. Like, I can do it. He said, run away. Don't analyze your desires or figure out what's really motivating you or trying to key into your past uh, events. It just get out of there. Very simple. <clears throat> but he can't sustain it for long. He immediately goes right back to the very theological. So verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. I'm going to skip down to verse 19 because I don't have time to explain the rest of verse 18. You'll have to text me about it, and I'll try to answer it on Cut for Time on the podcast. But verse 19 says, "Because don't you know, have you forgotten Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Don't you know that your body, this body that you are saying doesn't matter and can be satisfied any way you want, that body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you? Paul's referring to the fact that when someone becomes a Christian, God sends his spirit to indwell that person, to live within that person. And it's the spirit in us that is transforming us, awakening us to the new life we have in Christ, revealing what the word of God means as we read it, calling us to our part in God's work in the world, giving us the ability and the courage to do what he's called us to do, convicting us when we abandon God's calling in our lives or when we're wandering away from the obedience he's called us to. Unlike every other temple in the city of Corinth, each one of those physical buildings was the place where the the worshipers considered that that's where God comes to earth, where heaven comes to earth. But if you asked a Christian in Corinth and said, hey, where is the temple of the God you worship? They wouldn't point to a building. They would point to a people. We don't have a temple because our God doesn't live in a building. He lives in us. That place is not where you go to be close to heaven on earth. This person and this church is where you go to be close to heaven on earth. We are his temple, each of us, all of us, together. 
So again, Paul's building a, a cumulative case here. If your body is a member of the body of Christ, if your spirit is united with him, if your body itself is a temple of the Holy Spirit, then don't you get it? You don't belong to yourself. He says, don't you know, don't you understand? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You do not belong to yourself anymore. God has bought and paid for you, and now he decides what you do with your body. Now, if that sounds pretty offensive to you, because it does to, to me too, uh, it's because, you know this, we're awash in a culture that values personal autonomy, personal self-rule above everything else. The individual and the individual alone has the responsibility to choose who they belong to. And who do we choose? Me. <laughs> Not me, but you know, me. I am my own, right? You can say it with me if you want. I, don't say it. It's, it's false. It's not true. Don't say it. I am my own, right? I belong to me. And if I belong to me, if I am my own, then I am the one who sets my own limits. I'm the one who decides what I will do and what I won't do. If I belong to myself, then I have no limits except my own will and how well I can achieve that in the world. The only thing stopping me is all of you who for some dumb reason also think you belong to only yourself. I am my own. But if I belong only to myself, then I'm also the only one at the end of the day who's responsible for giving myself any sort of sense of worth or value in the world. Any justification for my continued existence has to come from me. It can't come from anyone else. It can't come from anyone outside of me or else I've given them ownership over that part of me. I'm the only one, if I belong to myself, if I am my own, I'm the only one who can convince the world that I deserve to be here. I'm the only one responsible for finding my way in the world and for dealing with the nagging anxiety that I'm choosing wrong. And that if I choose wrongly, that's completely on me. No one's fault but my own, no one to blame except myself, and no one to rescue me except me. If anything hard happens in my life, it's my fault. If anything great happens in my life, it's my fault. I did it. But Paul says, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. He bought and paid for you through the death and resurrection of his son. Through Jesus, you do not belong to yourself. See, when you come to faith in Jesus, your ownership of yourself, your self-autonomy, your self-rule, along with all of your responsibilities for yourself, are transferred to God. You are no longer your own. You belong to Him, which means He gets to decide what you do with your body. Because here's the thing. If we belong only to ourselves, then we choose our own limits. Right, but if we belong to God, then limits are chosen for us. They are limits on our lives, on our actions, on our behavior, on our attitudes, on our beliefs, and on our loves. They are limits on us that we have not freely chosen, except to the extent that we have freely chosen to belong to God, because belonging to Him 
is so much better than belonging to myself. Growing up, I loved the uh, Toy Story movies. Uh, I was like, I think just a couple years older than Andy, the main human character, and so it's like, you know, there was, there's a generation of us, right, that sort of grew up with, with Toy Story, right? I see some heads nodding, thank you. Plus, you gotta remember, like, I was eight, eight or 10 whenever it came out, and it's the first actual computer animated movie of all time, so we're just like gobsmacked just watching this thing. And loved all the characters and the great memorable lines and all that stuff. As an adult, I've appreciated the movies more because of the moral certainty of the main character, right? Woody the Sheriff. Woody the Sheriff, in scene after emotional scene, he has to face this conflict of desires within him, wondering what he should do next. How do you know what to do? In, in one particularly emotional scene, uh, Woody is torn between this desire to be the central figure in a, uh, in a museum exhibit of these classic toys from a 50s TV show that he's, you know, he's part of, to be adored and loved by millions of children, to be celebrated and rejoiced in, or to go back to the, the boy uh, who owns him. You've seen the movies. What does is, what is Woody do every time he's like stuck in one of these decisions? No one wants to say it out loud, right? He, he does what only a ragdoll can do and sort of like lifts up his, his foot and looks at the bottom. Where What's written on the bottom? Andy, right? Because who is he? Andy's toy. Every time in these movies when Woody faces like, what am I going to do? He has to remember, he remembers who he is by remembering whose he is. Saying, no, I, I don't get to choose for myself what I want to do because I am not my own. I am Andy's toy. And to be Andy's toy is to be better. To be in a better situation than, than choosing for yourself and becoming a lost toy. See, it's only if you belong to someone else, only if you belong to someone else, does it ever make sense for you to deny what you want or what you desire in favor of the desires of the one who owns you. And especially if the one who owns you is also the one who created you, then abiding in his limits, living as he calls you, is what actually really enables you to live as you were created to live. You're not being restricted in your ownership or in your being owned, you're being set free. Finding more fulfillment in living within your owner's limits, God's limits, than exploring the limits that you set for yourself. All right, well, let's wrap this up. Let me, let me summarize. In, in these verses, uh, Paul uses the fact of our belonging to God that we are bought and paid for to come to the conclusion that we cannot just do whatever we want with our bodies, our lives, ourselves. We belong to him. He decides what we do with ourselves and with our bodies. So, application, flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. There's the negative and the positive. Now, if there is any one thing in our modern world that makes Jesus' teaching on sex and sexuality and Paul's application of that teaching so difficult to accept, it's this foundational conflict in our understanding of who we belong to. Our world tells us you belong to yourself. You decide. Don't let anyone decide for you. God says, no, you belong to me. You belong to me. 
not me, you know, you understand. You belong to God, and he decides. But of all of our human experiences, we're, we're convinced in this day and age that sex is definitely the one where we exercise the most personal and private self-rule. So it's in this area where we are most tempted to believe that, no, I belong to myself. No, no one gets to tell me what's right or wrong in this area. Especially if I don't know if what others are telling me is good for me is really good for me. Some of you that are older in the room, do you guys remember how when you were kids, when we were kids, we thought that everything that was restricted to adults only was probably really amazing or else they wouldn't be hoarding it for themselves? <laughs> you remember this, right? When, when you're a little kid and you're like, you have to be so old to drive a car, it must just be incredible, right? Or, and then it's like, smoking, you have to be even older, that must be even more amazing. Um, alcohol must just be this incredible thing. And voting is probably the best <laughs> of all the adults. <laughs> it's funny that, you know, um, getting up and going to work even when you don't want to didn't make it onto that list of amazing things that only adults are forced to do, paying bills and paying taxes and all that stuff. But, I mean, somehow we got the idea as kids that anything restricted and kept from us must be a wonderland of delights jealously guarded by adults. And we couldn't wait because when we became adults, we then would have access to the playground and free reign to enjoy everything there however we want. Most of us have taken that same idea that we had as kids and continue to believe it as adults in the areas of sex and sexuality. I think what this passage is challenging us, and all, all three weeks here have been challenging us to think about is, well, what if sex and sexuality isn't like a playground, just waiting to be creatively explored, where you want to squeeze every last minute of playtime before you have to go home for the day? What if, on the other hand, human sex and sexuality is more like an untamed wilderness that will kill you if you're not prepared? See the difference? Which one invites creative exploration? Not the wilderness. I mean, the question here is, what if Jesus' teaching on sex and Paul's application of it to the church isn't about God limiting our freedom, you know, keeping us from the playground, telling us, hey, I built this amazing thing, don't touch it. What if instead Jesus is teaching on sex and sexuality and Paul's application of it to the churches is more like God saying, hey, this area of life is not a playground. This is not Disneyland. It's a wilderness. It's full of cliffs and crevasses and pitfalls and sudden whiteouts. You are not safe here unless you stick to the roads. Don't go wandering off in whatever direction your fancy takes you. You're going to end up dead on the trail. See, if sex and sexuality is a, a playground that God is spitefully keeping us from, and we belong to ourselves and choose what is good and right for ourselves, then, of course, it does not make sense at all to submit yourself to God's will. He's trying to keep something good from you that you deserve. But if, as Scripture argues, sex and sexuality, I mean, especially the way it's lived out in today's culture, if it's really more like a wilderness in which there are a thousand ways to fall into despair, or to find yourself used, abused, and abandoned, or to find yourself robbed of your freedom and stripped of your dignity, if that's what it's more like, 
then isn't the most loving thing God can say to us is something like, stick to the road. Don't veer outside of these guidelines. This is for your own good. Stick to the path I carved out for you through this wilderness. So when God tells us that sex is only truly good when it is an act of self-giving love within a one-flesh union, practiced as a way of confirming and strengthening the bond of a husband and wife, is he telling us this because he wants to restrict our joy and keep us from the playground? Or because he wants to guide us into joy through the wilderness? What's he trying to do for us? And he says, hey, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. <clears throat> These are hard words for us to hear today. I know, I, I mean, it's difficult to hear this. This strikes at the heart of our own sense of self-direction, self-autonomy, self-rule. And yet coming to Jesus is also coming to a king to whom you say, You've bought and paid for me. I am no longer my own. I belong to you. I know many today believe that if you go to the church for answers to your questions about sex, you're going to find rules and regulations that suck all the, all the joy, all the fun out of it. But if you've been around a good, healthy church for a while, you've seen people submit themselves in this area to the God who owns them and have found joy in the obedience, have found a flourishing new life. I have seen in this church and other churches, I have seen men with pornography addictions living within marriages that are struggling to stay together, but they've confessed, been open, and been surrounded with the help of the church and the spirit and are now free to live within healthy and happy and flourishing marriages. So which do you want more? Free access to pornography or a deep and meaningful bond with your spouse? Which one's better? I've seen teenagers struggling with that desire to, to feel like they belong, to be accepted, and who use sex as a way of finding that acceptance. Find, hey, somebody loves me. I've, but I've watched as the church has surrounded teenagers and young adults with, with non-sexual love and acceptance and said, hey, let's find our source of belonging in Jesus, in the God who bought and paid for you, not the boyfriend or the girlfriend who wants to use you. In this church, I have seen men whose wives have walked out on them. I've seen women whose husbands have disappeared, and I've seen them be surrounded by others who have experienced similar kinds of abandonment together, clinging to the hope that hey, one day God is going to make this right. I've seen men and women who struggle with an unwanted same-sex attraction, and I've watched as, as people have settled into a life of faithful singleness, asking and receiving the gift of celibacy from God and finding flourishing community, even as a single person in a group of mostly married folks, uh, finding a place to belong and submitting their own inner desires to God's redeeming and refining spirit and ultimately deciding it is better to live that integrated life than to follow inner desires. And I've gotten to be in this church part of story after story of men and women who are faithfully struggling 
to remain faithful in their singleness, faithful in their marriage. Saying, man, what's important here is not what I want because I am not my own. I've been bought with a price and I belong to God. I'm not my own, I belong to him. As we wrap this up, just to be clear, it is terrifying to belong to someone else. Just want to make sure we're all, that we're being open about that. It is terrifying to belong to someone else. If you can't trust that the other person wants what is good, what is best for you, then you live in fear that they will use you, exploit you, abandon you, forsake you. It's terrifying to also belong to yourself, knowing that it all lands on you, and you're the only one who can justify your own existence. But for most of us, that feels just the, the wee bit less terrifying than saying, okay, I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to you. But when we say that to God, I belong to you, we have to remember, God doesn't purchase slaves so he can use them and abuse them and lose them. When God says you were bought with a price, he says he redeemed you as a son and a daughter, so he can forgive you, welcome you, adopt you in, and enfold you in the loving embrace of his arms and in his family. See, God is not going to harm you. Nothing he says here is for your bad. He has paid way too high of a price to let you come to harm. He's paid an infinite price for you, the price of his own son's life. See, in this world, you have to belong to someone. For my money, belong to the one who gave everything for you. He will never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, you challenge us. The most challenging part of our obedience to you is in admitting that we are not our own, that we do not direct and guide our own lives, that you will take us places we do not want to go, you will ask us to do things we do not want to do, you will keep us from doing things that we do want to do, and you will even withhold from us good things, because you have a greater good in mind. Father, overwhelm us with the contemplation of Jesus' love for us in his sacrifice for us on the cross, his resurrection for us, and the promise of new life and new hope for us, that being overwhelmed by your son's love for us, we may find our hearts drawn to you, wanting to give ourselves fully and completely to you. Father, help us to confess, even as we don't believe it, but strive to, that we are not our own, but belong to you. May we live as your sons and daughters. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.